0: You're listening to Canada's Court, the first podcast to highlight select oral hearings from the Supreme Court of Canada. Presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association and available on all major podcast platforms. Visit podcast.criminallawyers.ca for more information. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Canada's Court. My name is Brittany Cohen, and I'm a criminal defense lawyer at Caravana friedberg LLP in downtown Toronto. Today, you will hear the case of Her Majesty the Queen and Anthony Raoul Alas. The respondent was convicted by a jury of second-degree murder for fatally stabbing the deceased outside of a bar. The defense at trial was self-defense of another person. At the pre-charged conference, both the respondent and the Crown had agreed that there was no error of reality to the defense of provocation, focusing on a cooling-off period during the interaction and other factual circumstances. The trial judge accordingly ruled that the defense should not be put to the jury. The respondent appealed his conviction, alleging, amongst other grounds, that the trial judge had erred in failing to open the defense of provocation. A majority of the Court of Appeal for Ontario agreed that provocation should have been put to the jury, set aside the conviction, and ordered a new trial. In the majority's view, two discrete incidents could constitute as a potential provocative act. There was no cooling-off period between the second act and the stabbing. The doubt expressed at the pre-charge conference ought to have been resolved in favor of the accused. While it is plausible on this record that various factual circumstances negated the subjective elements of provocation, such as the respondent arming himself with a knife, and nevertheless remained open for the jury to conclude otherwise. In dissent, Justice McPherson would have upheld the conviction. In his view, the respondent, the crown, and the trial judge were correct in concluding there was no air of reality to the defense of provocation and the subjective elements of provocation were not met on the facts. Moreover, it would run contrary to the respondent's limited right to control his defence and run some risk of confusing the jury, as he expressly chose to defend the charge throughout the trial by way of self-defence of another person and not provocation. The respondent then appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada as a right. Good
1: morning. Be seated. In the case of Her Majesty the Queen against Anthony Roll-Alice, for the Appellant, Her Majesty the Queen, Kevin Rollock, G. Karen Papadopoulos. For the Respondent, Anthony Roll-Alice. Uh, Mr. John Rosen.
2: Mr. Rollock. Thank you. We're here today because the majority of the Court of Appeal found that the trial judge erred by putting the Respondent's case to the jury just the way he wanted. We say, like Justice McPherson in dissent, everyone at trial got it right. There was no air of reality to provocation. The trial judge was duty-bound to keep it from the jury. To give you a roadmap for my submissions, I have four main points. One, the trial judge correctly found that provocation had no air of reality. Two defense counsel's position at trial confirms there is no error of reality. Three, the trial judge's decision deserves some deference. And four, even if provocation should have been put to the jury, no substantial wrong or miscarriage of justice resulted in the circumstances of this case. On the first point, the trial judge properly exercised his gatekeeper role in keeping provocation from the jury because the absence of suddenness deprives the objective and subjective elements of an air of reality.
1: So, Mr. Rolick, I have a question for you. In which circumstances, and I, I know that you will elaborate on that later on, but uh, and then you can take your time, but I just want to put that question to you right now. In which circumstances a judge uh, should follow the uh, suggestions or the submissions of the attorneys and specifically the defence attorneys, uh, who doesn't want to open the provocation defence. But there is some evidence of provocation that could get that could lead to open the, the defence as such. Is there are there any circumstances in which the trial judge would be well founded, would be right not to uh,
2: not to open the defense? Well, thank you for that question. I'm glad you raised it at the outset. We would say that in circumstances where there's a credible argument to be made that the air of reality test is not met, in those circumstances, trial judges should give primacy to the considered positions of counsel. And the benefit of that approach is that, take for example, provocation. It obviously only arises in murder trials long hard fought trials generally so giving some primacy to the defense position when they say they don't want an alternative defense left would help bring some certainty to the trial judge's role and it would result it would reduce the risk of an unnecessary retrial for example or it would also allow the trial judge to sort of have some more concrete guidance and applying the air of reality test which is perhaps easy to say in principle, but difficult to apply in practice.
3: Mr. Rollick, can I just follow up on that question and, and add to it what Justice McPherson mentions in paragraph 84, where speaking about second-guessing defense counsel's explicit choice, he notes um, it would inject a dangerous element of confusion and even conflict into the appellant's defence. I'm wondering what the relevance of that is, just generally speaking, and then in this case, in particular, given that the respondent contests that that position.
2: So the rel- the relevance in this particular case is that the. The reasons identified by Justice McPherson support defense counsel's exercise of tactical decision making and point to considerations that were no doubt on counsel's mind when he took the position that provocation didn't have an air of reality. And to the chief justice's question, that's part of the reason why we should, in close calls, give primacy to the defense position, because they're best placed to assess on the ground the impact that putting an alternative defense might have in the concrete circumstances of a particular case. So for example, here, a jury instruction on provocation might well have elevated a compromised verdict of manslaughter. And here, the defense was going for an outright acquittal. So I say that these types of considerations are what animate defense counsel's decision making on a daily basis. And those types of concerns in this case only reinforce the reasonableness of defense counsel's considered position that provocation had no air of reality. With respect to the trial judge's decision here, there's really three subpoints I want to emphasize. First, the deceased's conduct was not sudden and unexpected. Taking the defense case at its highest, the deceased who was unarmed and outnumbered three to one, either raised his fist or lunged towards one of the women in the respondent's group. That alleged provocation could not surprise the respondent, as he knew about the deceased's earlier physical aggression towards Patricia Isaacs. That was why he went outside and braced his knife in the first place, anticipating a confrontation. And the confrontation that resulted was predictable. The deceased didn't pull out a weapon. He behaved consistently with his earlier known aggression. It was the respondent's conduct, stabbing the deceased, that was sudden and unexpected. Look no further than the immediate reaction of his fiance, the person he said he was protecting. The respondent told police she was freaking out oh my God, what did you do? What did you do? He replied, I just did what I had to do. The focus at trial was on whether the alleged provocation was sufficiently sudden and unexpected to cause the respondent to subjectively lose self-control. Everyone agreed that it was not. But suddenness is not exclusively a subjective consideration. It also impacts on the objective element. How could provocation that is not sudden and unexpected deprive an ordinary person of the power of self control? The answer, at least in this case, is that it could not. The second point is that the respondent deliberately anticipated and deliberately responded to the deceased's conduct. There was nothing in the respondent's police statement, he didn't testify, suggesting he lost self-control in the moment. To the contrary, the respondent described tracking the deceased in the bar, waiting for and engaging him outside, and anticipating aggression, giving him a knowing look to communicate. If you do anything, I would jump on you. Readying his knife in his hand before the deceased made any move moving that knife from his pant to jacket pocket and getting a good grip on it, and finally, deliberately stabbing the deceased, admittedly aiming for his chest as soon as he raised his fist. That series of decisions, in my submission, is the antithesis of a provocation defense. Finally, the unchallenged cooling-off period between the two incidents rendered provocation unavailable. This cooling off period prevents the respondent from relying on the first incident that he said caused him to shake as provocation. And to the extent you consider the first incident as relevant background, it undercuts provocation by showing that the respondent knew that the deceased was physically aggressive beforehand. So the question comes down to this. Is a fist going up sufficient to cause a loss of self-control? In answering yes, the majority set the societal standard for the ordinary person far too low. Although no two cases are exactly alike, compare another decision of the Ontario Court of Appeal called Stubbs. There, the court held that the deceased act of raising his fist and saying there's the fucking goof was insufficient to deprive an ordinary person of the power of self-control. Each case obviously turns on its own facts, but that's a useful comparator and helps illustrate the point I'm trying to make here.
4: Mr. Rawlick, Mr. Uh, as I'm listening to you, really, you're making a case. The case you're making is that there's no possible uh, basis for an error of, uh, for of reality of provocation. And yet you say uh, in close calls, we must give primacy to the defense position. I gather is what you're, is what you're saying that in this case, the defense position is kind of irrelevant because the there was no air of reality, whatever
2: the defense position was, because I'm trying to reconcile those two. Uh, Thank you for clarifying. That's exactly what I'm saying. We don't even need to get to the defense position because in our submission, this was not a close case. This was a case where the trial judge simply got it right without reference to defense counsel's position. And in our submission, defense counsel's position simply confirms the correctness of that ruling. So as Justice McPherson pointed out in dissent, if we're talking about the defense position here, for purposes of appellate review, the position taken by counsel at trial assists an appellate court in determining whether defense properly arises on the evidence. And for good reason. To conduct the appeal without any regard for the conduct of the trial would risk, as Justice Doherty put it in Kimberly, making a mockery of the process. Yet here, the majority of the Court of Appeal never considered defense counsel's position in determining air of reality. For his part, the respondent seemingly recognizing counsel's, the importance of counsel's position to the air of reality analysis. Tries to undercut it based on three words spoken during the precharge conference. There is, however, no compelling reason to second guess defense counsel. I say that for three reasons. First, a fair reading of the impugned exchange shows that the focus and purpose of defense counsel's submissions was on the was was on the evidence showing an absence of suddenness not the legal effect of provocation. His slip of the tongue regarding vitiating the mens rea for murder was obviously understood by everyone in the room as exactly that, an inadvertent slip on a non-issue. Second, and relatedly, the respondent now concedes that his tr- that defense counsel was not incompetent and did not provide ineffective assistance to counsel. In other words, The strong presumption of counsel competence reinforces this slip of the tongue reading. Finally, and I've touched on this already before, Defence counsel's decision was not just supported by presumption of competence, but by real tactical considerations. So at the end of the day, the respondent can't have it both ways. He can't say his counsel was competent and effective, but ask you to disregard entirely his position that provocation had no air of reality based on three words in the transcript. Defense counsel's position was considered, reasonable, and supported by tactical considerations. The majority should have considered it in determining whether provocation properly arose on this evidence at this trial. And just moving on to my third point, it hits on what Justice Jamal pointed out to me as well, which is this deference point. We say you don't even need to get here because the trial judge's decision was, in our submission, the correct one. He got it right. But what I do want to point out is any attack on defense counsel's position is further undercut by the fact that both the trial crown and the trial judge also thought it had no air of reality. So we accept that the question of whether a defense properly arises on the evidence or has an air of reality is a question of law, reviewable on a correctness standard. But a trial judge's task is no easy one. This court has recognized that trial judges must tread a fine line, prohibited from weighing the substantive merits of a defense, but required to determine the field of factual inferences that could reasonably be drawn from the evidence. We say that the trial judge's decision to keep provocation from the jury deserves some deference. Why? Because he had a front row seat at this trial. He was best placed to determine the field of factual inferences that could reasonably be drawn. And what does some deference mean? It means that we should not conduct appeals as though there was no trial. Finally, even if this court concludes that there was an air of reality of provocation, despite defense counsel's position. No substantial wrong or miscarriage of justice resulted in this case. Now let me acknowledge at the outset, the proviso likely won't apply in most cases where a defense with an error of reality is kept from the jury. But there will be rare cases like this one where the proviso is safely applied because the error is harmless in context. Here, I emphasize three things. One, this wasn't the case where the defense wanted provocation put to the jury. This was a case where the defense didn't even think it properly arose on the evidence, suggesting any air of reality was marginal at best. Two, provocation would have undermined the respondent's credibility given his claim he was purposefully defending his fiancée, and her friend. And three, consequently, would have diluted his primary defence, which depended on his credibility, and undermined his only shot at an outright acquittal. I can do no better than quote what the Ontario Court of Appeal said in Lavert, citing this court's decision in Leary. It is not in the interest of justice that an accused be given a chance to rethink his defence and appeal where his first trial was fair and free of substantial wrong or miscarriage of justice. Approaching that issue somewhat differently, had the trial judge charged the jury on provocation in the circumstances of this case, that undoubtedly would have formed the respondent's first ground of appeal against conviction. So I end where I began. The respondent got the trial he wanted. There was no air of reality to provocation as everyone recognized the trial. On the respondent's own evidence, he anticipated, prepared for, and armed himself for a risk. A predictable altercation materialized, and he immediately and deliberately stabbed the deceased six times in response. On these facts, the trial judge was duty-bound to keep provocation from the jury. Subject to any questions, those would be my submissions. Thank you very much. Mr. Rosen?
4: Yes, thank you, uh, Chief Justice. Um, Let me begin by saying this uh, in answer to my friend's uh, position. The reason that we have an error of reality test is because we don't want jurors to speculate just because somebody said, she consented or uh, I was provoked or I was acting in self-defense. We want to have some substance on the record. But at the same time, where there's a, an abundance of evidence that raises the the fact that the accused uh, does act on a provocative act, which is what happened in this case, we want the jury to have the tools in order to assess all of the evidence from every perspective because it fosters um, greater confidence in the in the um, uh, the result because we know that they've looked at it from every angle and what happened in this case is not a harmless error it was a serious error it was an error that may have started with defense counsel's misconception of the law but it ended with my client's conviction for murder without a jury considering whether or not uh, that could be ameliorated because of legal provocation. And in my respectful submission, the proviso certainly doesn't apply. The second point I want to make is in response to the the questions raised by members of the court. When when does uh, the the position of defense counsel bind the the trial judge uh, and prevent a a defense being put, even where there's some evidence that would support it? Well, it is clear that whether there is a particular position put forward for strategic reasons, that would be one thing. But when the position put forward is due to a mistake in law, that a misunderstanding of the law and a misunderstanding of the factual analysis, then the, the trial judge has an obligation to step in. And make sure, just as in, in the case of Quinton that i cited, there was a real waiver of that position now what, when does that happen but Mr Rosen well, just mr yeah. Rosen ju- I, yes sorry if the trial judge had
3: opened provocation and it had compromised defense counsel 's effort to secure an acquittal on the basis of a self defense argument compromised it two ways in law because it would have been if provocation was relied upon it would have been a manslaughter conviction and on the facts because it might have undermined the sorry the respondent's credibility the accused credibility as to whether
4: he was acting in self defense so what's the trial judge to do there uh, but you see, that begs the question w- with, with the greatest of respect, uh, because provocation and self-defense are closely aligned. A person may, may react to a provocative act with the intention of merely defending himself or a third party. But if they do it in rage and without uh, time to contemplate and, and uh, do it excessively, so that their conduct is unreasonable then the jury will find that they've committed a murder and the question then is do we ameliorate the murder based on the provocation so they go hand in hand which is precisely the point that justice pachaco put in in um in land now in this particular case This was not as Justice McPherson says, oh, look at how strong the argument was on self-defense. That's pretty uh, disingenuous with the greatest of respect when, in fact, provocation wasn't going to be put. Rather, look at what the words are of the of the defense counsel. Defense counsel right at the outset said, here are my positions. Uh, The identity is not an issue. Uh, Self-defense is an issue. Um, intent is an issue, and provocation is an issue. I mean, you know, I'm, having tr- I'm struggling with the provocation side, and then we find out why he's struggling with the provocation side, but he put all three to the judge. So this wasn't a case where somebody stood up and said, look, this is an identity case, and even if there's evidence of provocation, I don't want you to put it because it detracts from the, the focus on identity. That's not that case at all or nor nor is it uh anyways it's th- those are th- those are the sorts of cases where you make that tactical decision but in this particular case with the greatest of respect, it was all wrapped up in the same thing, which is his reaction to the to some big guy who's drunk and who's had this uh, belligerency all evening getting ready and and actually moving a fist to punch out one of the women that he's with, which is clearly a provocative act. Now you can, you can start off by saying I'm moving to defend, but when you defend using a knife, as opposed to a push or, or a punch, a jury might say that's unreasonable, but they may also say you were legally provoked. As did the court of appeal identify it in their in their uh, reasons. So, in my respectful submission, the 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 position taken by by uh, the the appellant in this case, as 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 the position taken by Justice McPherson in the dissent, clearly is not reflective of what actually happened in this case. The, in this particular case, you you have a, a um, an accused, the the respondent, who yes, he admittedly gets gets angry when he hears about the the belligerency of of the deceased, but he wants to hit him with a pool cue, not not with a knife in his pocket. He doesn't resort to that. And when he goes out, he doesn't go out because he's tracking the deceased. He goes out because he's been asked to come out for defensive purposes as Justice, uh, um, as the majority uh, puts it, uh, out of fear. And when the three of them are standing there, the two women and the, and the respondent, they say in the evidence that they thought he would walk by. They weren't waiting to confront him. And there's absolutely no evidence that that there was an initiated confrontation by any of those three. The initiated com- uh, uh, um confrontation came from the belligerent d- deceased as he had been all that night and what did he do he went right to one of the women now at that point the accused who had his hand on his knife didn't do anything he showed remarkable restraint and as the argument continued the 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 accused girlfriend steps in and ta- and, and begins arguing and his finger pointing and so forth And again, he shows remarkable restraint and doesn't get involved. And in the midst of that, when the bartender tries to come out and the deceased is pushing the door to prevent her, the accused and one of the other women go to the door and open the door so the bartender could come out. And that shows considerable restraint. This was not, as my friend uh, uh, alleges, uh, uh, that they were waiting to confront and attack this guy for for previous insults. They're hoping he'll move on. And then, when when they get out and the argument continues, and there's the the the, the finger pointing and the girlfriend's grabbing and she's pushing him away, he still doesn't get involved. When he gets involved, and what enrages him is the fact that this big guy is about to punch one of these women in the face or her head or whatever. What would an ordinary person do? Would an ordinary person just stand by and wait? No, of course not. An ordinary person would have stepped in. This accused stepped in. He did it, unfortunately, with excessive force. And so he was denied uh, self-defense. But he did it, in the heat of the moment, on sudden provocation, and 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 uh, without time to think about it, he reacted. As as the um, majority of the court of appeal said, if you look at what they refer to as the, um, uh, just bear with me. They as as they as they call it a um, uh, a plausible. Uh, scenario which i prefer w- with the greatest of respect to, to use justice pachaco's uh, uh, words which is a coherent narrative that he he went out because he feared a confrontation that he was there for a safety precaution that the violent uh, altercation was not a foregone conclusion nor was his own participation in it and that uh, they, the other parties, could have left. The deceased could have left and walked on, but instead commenced the the confrontation. That the confrontation was between the deceased and, and the girlfriend, Miss De and that the appellant did not start the confrontation. There's no evidence that he started it at all. That he resorted, he did not resort to violence until the deceased made a threatening gesture. And it was uh, it was difficult to see how he acted as an instigator, and wholly unprepared unpre- for a threatening act of the deceased. And uh, and Justice uh, Tullock says I'm not convinced of that, and he cites Kearney, which is a decision from this court, paragraphs 44 to 46, and land at paragraph 62. And he answers. He answers their their same arguments that they made in the Court of Appeal. He answers them again in this court. They say, oh, wow. They they, they, they say, well, you know, the appellant's anticipation of a conflict. Case after case after case where, where an appellant even provokes uh, an argument. It's still entitled to provocation. Where an appellant... Uh, or or a, a party arms themselves in the midst of a, an argument, or anticipation of an argument, or anticipation of some sort of confrontation. It's a contextual. It's a contextual analysis that needs to be done, which was not done in this case. And on the other hand, if you look at what Justice McPherson said about the facts, talk about rewriting the 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 evidentiary record he says first there was a clear and fairly lengthy period between the interaction inside and the subsequent action outside well that's only background that has nothing to do with what went on out in the parking lot he said second a bit later uh when they're outside the deceased and the appellant left the bar at around the same time and joined them excuse me They didn't go out together like buddies to join the three, the two women. The accused went out there because they was asked to go out there for a defensive purpose because they didn't know whether this guy was going to keep walking or not. And when the and when the deceased walked out, he walked out in a belligerent state, went right to one of the women to start an argument. And then he says, well, the deceased was rude towards the women, but didn't verbally threaten them. Well, I beg to differ. If you're yelling and screaming at at at, at some women and talking about uh, pushing one of them, oh, I didn't. I didn't hit her. I pushed her. And 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 if you put your finger up, I'm going to break your finger. That's not just being rude. And he goes on at paragraph 76, and he says the deceased did not have physical contact. Well, what were you supposed to do? It's an assault just to raise your fist with the intention of hitting somebody. Were you, so, were, were you supposed to wait until damage was done? Of course not. But, but Justice McPherson said, well, there's no physical contact. And then he says, well, he transfers the knife to his pants, which I agree uh, he, he's doing it. And he says he did so even though the confrontation between the deceased and the woman was verbal and was not displaying a weapon. He doesn't talk about anticipation he's not talking about what's on the on the uh, accused mind as as justice tullock did and he goes on to say and then he uh, and fifth he admitted to police no he didn't admit to police he told the police exactly what happened and what happened was when he saw the fist form that's when he reacted without time to think or cool down and sixth he said The appellant continued to stab. That's somehow a factor uh, against the appellant. Well, no, it's not actually. Continued to stab shows the rage with which the, the, uh, the, sorry, the respondent is acting, you know? I I mean, it, it, it would be interesting if he just went and hit him once and then stepped back. No, but that's not what happened. The girlfriend thought they were in a fight. And the fight was caused because he was about to punch one of the women.
5: Well, you know, it's interesting, Mr. Rosen. I'm listening. I was afraid for the safety and well-being yep. of the women. Yeah. And, and now you're saying, oh, well, you know, he acted in rage. His defense was I was acting out of fear, as Justice Kassier said to you. Now you're telling us he was acting out of rage. And by the way just by the way while we're on this, because you were putting this in the context of proviso, the trial judge couldn't have given a stronger rolled-up charge on lack of intent, which included provocation by words and and all the other things. that You just look at what the trial judge said mm-hmm. uh, in his charge. He's talking now about the difference between intent for murder and and, man's and the, and if it's not, manslaughter. If you're satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt when you cause Mr. Khalif's death, Anthony Alas was not acting in defense of another. In deciding whether Anthony Khalif had either state of mind to make the unlawful killing murder, you must consider the evidence of Anthony Alas's anger, fear, excitement, instinctive, instinctive reaction, provoking right. words, just let me finish, okay? Sorry, provoking yeah. words of conduct and consistency of Mr. Khaleef's with a frenzied attack. You couldn't probably get a better charge on what you are concerned your client was deprived of by the trial judge not leaving the very kind of particular defense of provocation as the criminal code defines it. And yet this jury came back with murder. And so they didn't have a doubt on any of this. Now, really, we know that provocation, as you know, uh, allows for a defense uh, where you have the intent to kill. Right? Right. Right. Okay. Right. That's the whole point. No, 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 but that's not the point. You got what you wanted here. You no. got you got a charge that couldn't have been better. And the jury... Yeah, yeah. Yes.
4: yeah except for one thing. Yeah. The jury came back, and they were bothered... They wanted to know about this issue of intent. They asked questions about the issue of intent. They were, they were asking questions with one eye blinded. Because had they known that it wasn't just an issue of intent, but that even if you found intent, that the rage that the trial judge put to them would ameliorate the murder back down a manslaughter. I don't know
5: how you get to Damn. provocation, though, when the jury has all this... And they, and, and they don't come
4: back with manslaughter. How are they going to come back differently on murder? Because they, they, they find that he acted in rage, but he had the intent to kill. Period. Okay? So, in other words, once they find the intent to kill, the rage and everything has, has nothing to do with this. And that's wrong in law. Because, because it's after you find murder that you then consider why he did it in terms of the four elements of provocation. I you don't consider that. it before you get to murder. I with, understand uh, with respect. that. I understand that. Yeah. And so, and so the jury wasn't given the tools to say, okay, even if we found the intent, even if we found that he acted impulsively in that, but he still had the intent because he stabbed him so many times. Now let's see why he did that.
5: Well, now you have to get into the technical defense of provocation and the technical defense yeah. of provocation on anybody's, everybody was saying it doesn't exist here uh, because with, there was no acting respect. on the sudden, yeah. which well, is the very uh, thing that the trial judge left to the jury in terms of the manslaughter.
4: Well, with, with respect, uh, Justice Moldaver, the, the, the whole idea about the suddenness Nobody ever focused on the fact that the punch was made and that he reacted to the punch. Everybody's talking about, well, was there a transactional connection between what went on in the bar and the cooling off period? And a few minutes later, there's this argument out in the parking lot. In other words, what he he found out in the bar that made him so angry had somehow a, a connection to what happened in the parking lot. No one ever said wait a minute, why did he do what he did? He did it because the guy was going to punch one of the women. Because he had a
5: burning rage that continued on from what happened in the bar. He he calmed down, granted, in the sense that he didn't go after him with the pool cue, but he had this inner rage inside him right then and there,
4: okay? If he, and if, if he'd, he'd he gone outside
5: rage. to protect the women, all he had to do is say, let's
4: get out of here, he's coming out. We can go back to the bar after he gets there. I I I agree completely. But but he he stood there, and they got into the argument. He didn't act at all during the argument. He all, and I went through each step along the way. He did. He, he looked. He, he gave didn't. He did. That rage never came yeah. to the forefront.
5: What are you up to, uh, man, or something? And gave him a look on his own evidence on, on what he to, said to the police yeah. was. A Look, which was if you go further, I'm going to jump you. What is that all right. about?
4: Is that, right. I'm gonna, on the in sun. other words, I'm going to get into a fight with you if you go if you if you go further or if you don't move on. He didn't say, "Oh, and I'm going to jump you and stab you." He wasn't talking about that. Remember, he said, "I carried that knife for self self defense purposes."
2: But can we go to? Um... To the exchange with Mr. McGregor under your tab 12, I mean, yes. Mr. Mr. McGregor uh, says um, it, so. Defense counsel is saying that um, he thinks provocation should not be left because of the moving of the knife mm-hmm. from the client's pocket, right, of my pajamas up to the pocket in my hood in preparation of something that's about to happen. I'm on page uh, 1077. And then this is a submission that's made by counsel. To me, this demonstrates a mind consciously aware of something that may occur such that it's not a shock, that it's not on the sudden. So, um,
4: But but that's, uh, and I agree, uh, uh, Justice Martin, I agree completely, except that he goes on to say it's not a shock under the necessary legal test. And the legal test that he's thinking of is that the shock has to be such as to vitiate uh, the intent for murder. That's the whole problem here. On the, on the he, he begins his analysis and says, at, at page 1076, he says, um, after talking about being notified and so forth, he says there's a the cooling-off period. It's insufficient to proceed because he's aware of a potential assault, so what? and Or a violent altercation has a cooling-off period, and then, uh, and uh, and then, uh, it doesn't reach on the sudden to establish provocation such that it shocks the mind, allowing the mens rea to be vitiated. That's the legal test that he is operating under, and unlike jo- what Justice McPherson said, that that he was pressing the judge not to put the defense. If you look later, he he ends off his submissions by saying, unless your honor sees something differently. And and, and if the trial judge had said to him, look, uh, uh, defense counsel, um, it isn't a question of whether it shocks the mind in order to vitiate uh, mens rea. It's whether or not having had the mens rea, you acted on the sudden out of rage. And, and and that's where, where you're at. Now, are, do you really not want me to leave that to the jury? And he said, No, I don't want you to leave it because it undermines my defense of self-defense. Then I'm with you. I, I concede that. But where, but where there's a clear mistake on the record, and the trial judge doesn't fix it, and it's compounded by the by the by the the crown's analysis, which is at page 1079 where the where the crown says under the same tab he says you're looking at three distinct actions is about line 20 all different um and that may ultimately have led to the stabbing the sudden provocation and sudden response looking at the cases we're talking about firing on an unprepared mind when that happens he does not have an unprepared mind because he already has his hand on the knife so what other, other cases, uh, the, the knife is in the hand and they're coming right at the accused. Look at Bazizi; He stabs an unarmed man who's dropped his knife. Uh, or Gill, where they go out and he goes to the, the trunk of the car and gets a knife and comes back into the affray. That's not correct. You because haven't they're raised, all operating you, on, you on the basis that officiates. Ineff- you
5: haven't raised ineffective assistance to counsel. And I would have thought, based on your submission, that if counsel did not know that the defense of provocation could reduce murder to manslaughter even though there was the intent to kill. I would have thought that would be the first ground of appeal. You don't raise that. You don't suggest that he was ineffective. And 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 so I have to assume he did know the difference and what provocation
4: can do, and it was a slip or something. With respect, it wasn't a slip. It was it was a, just a mistake. Lawyers make mistakes all the time.
5: It's not a mistake. When they make mistakes. Sorry, when they that's make not mistakes a mistake in, if you don't know that provocation can right. reduce murder to manslaughter,
4: even though you had the requisite intent. That's not a mistake. But, right, but it's, a, no, it is a mistake. It's a mistake that you make in front of the arbiter of, of the law, the trial judge. It's a mistake that the trial judge endorses. <laughs> and and the Crown does too. Because they're all operating on the assumption that it has to vitiate uh intent. The the look, in a the justice of Trotter, counsel is you're, not investigating. You're the telling case. me that Justice
5: Trotter didn't know the difference?
4: Is that what you you're know saying? What? No, no, I'm not saying he no. didn't know the difference. I'm saying that he had counsel in front of him who were putting a submission to him and, and it just, he missed it. He didn't hear that. Uh, or, or if he did, he, it didn't register. Whatever happened, the point is, I all I'm saying is that the defense counsel was not ineffective in the courtroom. The defense counsel just made a mistake. And all the court had to do was step back and ask, and clarify, and the court didn't. I'm not saying Justice Trotter was ineffective. People make mistakes. And unfortunately, in this particular case, this accused didn't get a fair trial and got convicted of murder without any consideration of whether it should be ameliorated down to manslaughter. And that's the kind of, uh, you know, one of the questions that was asked earlier about when, when does a judge not put a defense and so forth. Well, it has to be clear on the record. There has to be a, a valid waiver. If it's the waiver is not informed, as the Court of Appeal in Ontario said in Quinton, if the waiver isn't informed, then it's not a waiver. If the position taken is not informed, then it's not a valid position subject to any questions the court has. I see I'm just about out of time.
1: Thank you very much. Um, Any reply, Mr. Rollock?
2: No, thank you, Chief Justice.
1: Thank you very much. I would ask the attorneys to remain at our disposal. Thank you. Please be seated. I'd like to thank counsel for their patience. The court is uh, ready to... He released his decision. It's a unanimous decision. It reads as follows. Mr. Alas was convicted at trial of second-degree murder after he stabbed the deceased six times during an altercation at, at a bar. A majority of the Ontario Court of Appeal, McPherson, JA dissenting, overturned his verdict and ordered a new trial. The Crown appeals to this Court as of right. The sole issue is whether there was an air of reality to the defense of provocation, such that the trial judge erred in failing to put the defense to the jury. This offense predated the amendment to the provocation provision, which applies to offenses committed on or after July 17, 2015 we find no error in the trial judge's determination that there was no error of reality to the defense of provocation. The the standard of review for whether there is an error of reality to the defense of provocation is correctness. The key issue here is whether there is sufficient evidential basis as to the fourth requirement element of the provocation defense that the accused acted on the sudden. Taking the evidence at its highest for the accused, for present purposes, the subjective element of test of the test for provocation has not been met. The accused did not react on the sudden before there was time for his passion to cool. It is beyond the range of reasonable inferences to say that Mr. Alas's reaction to the deceased making a punching, lunging motion at the woman, was on the sudden. Rather it was the culmination of an altercation that Mr Alas both instigated and anticipated. As he indicated in his statement to the police, A. Mr. Alas was aware that the deceased had an altercation with his friend earlier in the evening, during which the deceased closed the door on her head. Mr. Alas was so upset about the deceased's conduct that he wanted to hit the deceased in the head with a pool cue. He cooled down and did not take this course of action. When his fiancée and friend went outside to smoke, he told them that he would follow if he saw the deceased go outside as well. Quote, If I see this guy get up and come out, I'm coming. I'll be right behind him. Unquote. Mr. Alas observed the deceased preparing to leave the bar. In anticipation, he went outside to join the two women. When the deceased came out of the bar, he looked at Mr. Alas' friend In response to this look, Mr. Alas responded, What the fuck is wrong with you? Do you have a problem? A verbal altercation ensued involving Mr. Alas, the deceased, and the two women. During the verbal altercation, Mr. Alas retrieved a knife from his pants pocket and moved it to his jacket pocket just in case. With the knife gripped in his hand, he stared at the deceased. At his police interview, Mr. Alas said that he stared at the deceased in this way in order to, I quote, let him know, like if you do do anything, I I would jump on you, unquote. When Mr. Alas saw the deceased making a a fist directed at the woman, he immediately jumped in and stabbed him in the throat, although he said that he wanted to stab him in his chest. He stabbed the deceased five more times after that. Accordingly, the appeal is allowed and the conviction is restored. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Canada's Court, presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association. A full webcast version of the oral argument featured in today's episode can be viewed from the Supreme Court of Canada website at scc-csc.ca or obtained from the court directly. Other episodes are available on all major podcast platforms or by visiting podcast.com criminallawyers.ca. The Supreme Court of Canada is not affiliated with this podcast and did not produce or participate in its creation.